Hello there. My name is Michael Brady, and I am part of the the partnership called Partners for Karmic Freedom with Linda Brady, the internationally known and recognized karmic astrologer and author who has passed over to the other side five days ago. This is plus five day since Linda was set free from her earthly bounds uh, and her earthly mission and challenges in body at least and now she is uh, in a better place and we are all grieving going through our own emotional catharsis that's necessary when we lose somebody in a bodily sense but not in an emotional or spiritual sense Right off the bat, I want to um, bring up um, the um, the uh, the life celebration uh, that I have proposed could be um, should be. <laughs> oh, I hate it when I lose track of my dates, guys. And I try to write everything down. Okay. Uh, okay. Right. Set up for. Uh, April 21st through the 23rd, 421-23. That's your proposed um, date weekend. That's a good weekend in terms of hotel rates uh, here in Tampa, according to my hotel expert, Matt Kroll, who is a national traveler (laughs) professionally, so he can handle travel arrangements faster than you can go, oh my goodness, so he's giving me that information. That's that's the first really good um, economic slot for people coming in to um, have it set up. And what I'd like to put out now is that's not locked in stone yet because the piece we're pl- I'm, I'm playing with at least is um, trying to get as many people available, be able to come as uh, as possible. So I'm already getting a couple of people are saying, well, that weekend's not the best weekend or I can't come on that week about the following week or the following weekend. Yeah. Okay, so what I want to say is is uh, this is the time. If if you have an intention, a desire to um, take part in physically in a ritual of celebration of Linda's life to bring closure to yourself and to other people and, and to share that with other people. Uh, this is the time to text me, email me, give me your, that date doesn't work for me and your alternatives. Bingo. Uh, <laughs> and it's, uh, I don't know. I guess we can wait a week. I can wait a week. So this time next Sunday, uh, I'll probably take whatever data I get and I will make a final determination about the date and it will get locked in. And then we can start dealing with the details and how to get it happening. And people can go ahead and start to make plane reservations and stuff like that. Because, you know, we all know that you want to do it as soon as possible with the way airfare rates and all that crap work. So uh, spread the word, please. Um, anybody you think is interested and involved in this process uh, that may not be paying attention to me or this podcast, please let them know that uh, that the um, the date we're talking about, oh God, I just lost where it is again in my head. 
got it. Uh, April 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. That is, um, I got to look at my calendar real quick. <laughs> About to step in my, put my step in, put my foot in my mouth. That's it. <laughs> Hang on. Let me get to April and look at that calendar. Okay. Right. Okay. The twenty eighth is a Friday. What the hell? Am I, okay. The twenty first. Sorry. <laughs> the twenty first of April is a Friday. So we're talking about coming in that night in, in, into the hotel. The um, the actual event would be on the day of February. 22nd that's saturday and february 23rd that's sunday and closuring around three o'clock in the afternoon which is allowing people enough time if they need to fly out overnight to get to the airport and stuff and get home in order to get back to back to business business the following day um so uh understanding that please spread the word and tell people to uh reach out and affirm that date and if not, whatever alternatives uh, they think would work beyond that date, like the following weekend, the following weekend, the following weekend. I don't think we're going to be doing it sooner than that. Um, and ask them to, to act on it this week so that um, I can finally lock a date down, let's say next Sunday or Monday, uh, which would be... Can't do a damn thing without a calendar in front of me currently. Um, what am I at? The 29th. I'm on the 29th. Uh, so a week. Next sun, Next Sunday would be February the 4th. So by February the 5th, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to make a determination. February the 5th, a determination. Let me write that down. February 5, cutoff. Final. Okay. Good. I have notes everywhere. You wouldn't believe the piles of notes I've got. I'm flitting around these days. They're in uh, different piles. There was the hospital pile. There was the inpatient outpatient pile. There was the other doctor alternate cure pile. Uh, now I have the post crossover pile. I'm beginning to, <laughs> and it's not really categorized that well. Anyway, at least it's in piles. Oh, how am I doing um, on the fifth day without my love? Did great until I hit the play button on this today. Um, not having a lot of e- emotional overwhelm, but I'm having, um, and I think I said this in a group text this morning, um, I'm starting to feel, um, I don't know, like the hole, the deep hole inside me that uh, she filled and then within that hole down in there uh, a feeling of dread a little kernel a little corn kernel of dread down there in my gut Um, it's not constant it's only when I tune in or something calls me to the reality Um, or I'm in a conversation with someone and it, it hits something that evokes my emotional responses of grieving, I think. I think what I want to talk about today is emotional process because I have been obsessive about emotions since I wandered into psychology at the age of twenty. When I went to college, the first in my first semester, I took um, intro to psychology, and the reason I took intro to psychology in one of my free courses was because I was an emotional scared 
kid mess inside as I started college uh, and uh, very insecure about being in the world, even though a year be even though the year before that I was in service in Vietnam in the Navy in, in the Vietnam War and felt very confident by the time I got done my my uh, tour in Vietnam um, but it it vanished again when I came home and I st- and I went back into academia but at least I had that anchor I know what it felt like to not be a- anxious all the side deep down all the time deep down inside after I came back from Nam and I started college and um, <clears throat> And I immediately, you know, that switch from being, feeling like I was competent in the world when I first got back from Vietnam. And then like three months later, when I started college, within a month of starting college, I was back in the soup, so to speak, internally, the way I felt in high school most of the time. Um, I, I, um, my drive was to figure me out to handle my feelings to understand my feelings to understand how to manage myself um, and that was my interest and my drive in going into psychology in the first place and then of course I kept pursuing me while I got an um, an AA degree the first two years of my general education and ended up with four or five courses I think it was five courses in psych at the AA level before I ever declared a major uh, in my third year um, out of self-interest and was quite shocked when I was sitting with the academic advisor at, at Towson State University, which is called Towson State College back then, uh, planning my third year and having to declare a major. He said, I assume you're a psych major. I said, huh? Because I really hadn't thought about my professional career at that point in my life. I was still about figuring me out, really. And I, I just knew that I... I I I wanted to have a college education in life. I didn't want to be a tradesman or, uh, well, a firefighter, a a small boat repairman. I had done those things in the service. Uh, Or a woodworker, carpenter. I had done some of that as a part of my rate and my job in the service. I didn't want to do hands-on work. I didn't want to spend my life doing hands-on work. I wanted to use my mind and, I guess, my spirit more than a mechanical process. Uh, I knew that much when I started college. So um, I went in college and started diving into, pursuing, learning, understanding, figuring out me, figuring out especially the emotional part of me. Interestingly, my, uh, my master's degree is in clinical development of psychology. My academic education told me very little about emotional process. Uh, duh, is that a surprise, Michael? Um, what I've learned in my life about emotions, I've learned outside of uh, the science of psychology, uh, more in popular uh, work, um, and more out of life experience of working uh, as a helper in life to other people. I used a very broad term there, helper to other people in life, um, from experience mostly. And then some reading, but I can't, I can't really track the sources anymore of where my model, my theory, my um, 
framework of emotionality and how I work with that, with myself and with other people, came from. Uh, so at any rate, take it for what it's worth. I want to talk about that a little bit. We encourage people to be disconnected from their heart center, which I think is the brain that processes emotion in the body. Like the, 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 the heart thinks about our life and the values of our life and the meaning of our life through the emotional language in us, glad, mad, sad, scared, and ashamed. Uh, we're discouraged from seeing our heart as a, as a brain. We're encouraged to see it as a pump, a mechanical thing. Um, we're encouraged to see awareness and consciousness, which is akin to spirit, emerging from the chemistry of the brain, not the other way around, that consciousness manifest a brain somewhere along the way uh, flipped you know um, and we've been uh, preaching for a long time to be professional to be objective uh, that we need to think logically and we disregard or manage the emotional part and the emotions are are called subjective like there really is anything objective think thinking's no more objective than feelings are or feelings are no more subjective than thinking uh, yeah those terms are are false term actually it's a false way to think about something in, in my opinion and as a result of that what I've observed in my life is that most of us, most of the time, hell, by the time we're eight years old, 10 years old, uh, are so disconnected from ourselves from the neck down, particularly our heart center, particularly our emotions. So we're always, as Freud would say, repressing and denying our feelings. So constantly and supported by that, supported in that by our, our culture, so strongly, so pervasively every day that most people haven't got a clue what they feel. They don't even know that they're not feeling. <laughs> they just don't know a lot of the times until emotion overwhelms us in life, doesn't it? Like having somebody die and experiencing grief. Can't You know, it's like um, I use this analogy in my work with people and I'm, I'm pretty earthy in my analogies. Uh, emotions are like gas in the body. If uh, you have to eat beans every day on a physical level, you can say whatever you want to and other people can say whatever they want to about not passing gas. But sooner or later, regardless of who you are and no matter how hard you try, if you put beans through your body, you're going to produce gas and it's going to escape somewhere. And usually, because we're trying to repress all that, okay, it's not polite in public and who did that kind of thing. Uh, when it comes to gas, um, we I treat emotions the same way. We are repressing this stuff. So when it shows up, it shows up rather involuntarily, spontaneously. We get overwhelmed in a situation because emotion shows up against our will, you know, or in spite of what we want it want at the time. All of that is a product of this kind of repression that I'm trying to speak about. And how in, how endemic and cultural it has become since the age of enlightenment, since the birth of science, I suppose. 
And the illusion uh, science purports that it's objective. I mean, anybody who has the temerity to begin to wade into the quantum physics world at this point, not the math, I'm not a mathematician, but the interpretive part of it and just read along, anybody has a the interest or the sustainability to do that, it's going to find that there's emerging work like out of the um, – the place in CERN that they're doing the, the the underground donut thing, where they're um, they're they're physically recreating uh, more and more the earlier conditions of the universe at the quantum level, running experiments. This is not thought thought experiments, not theory. This is uh, I, uh, theory drawn drawn from creating physical conditions and collecting the data and then interpreting from there. Uh, at CERN, uh, and they're getting closer and closer and closer to the, like the beginning, the Big Bang, what the conditions were like. And so this is not just speculation. This is like starting to draw uh, conclusions from and ideas from solid evidence that we're getting back, so to speak. And one of them is that, wait for it, the speed of light is not universally constant in the universe. It is locally constant. Just play with that for a second. That means that if, if you and I could jump on a spaceship and we could go uh, outside the, the Milky Way galaxy, we live on a planet in the Milky Way galaxy. There are billions of galaxy clusters that we can perceive we've been able to look at in the skies with our satellites and stuff deeper and further with that technology as we get out into space there are billions of galaxy clusters not just just not a billion not billions of galaxies but clumps of them two three four five that you see at one shot when you get the imagery or the imagery that's interpreted from the radio waves that you're using to penetrate the universe we're one galaxy. So let's assume that our one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is the local universe. And that beyond that, you're into what we be called beyond local. You're into the general universe. And I'm just spitballing there. Um, it says that the constant speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. Remember that from grade school or high school? is the speed of light. And... and um, Einstein posited in his theory of relativity, I believe it's the theory of relativity, that, um, that that is the only constant in the universe was the speed of light. That means that everything else is relative to the speed of light. The speed of light is the only thing that stays the constant in every equation, in every instance, in every – it's like the yardstick. It's like the pole from which you judge how far and how big everything else is and what they're doing in relation to each other and it, the standard, the speed of light. Well, in the last couple of years, CERN has produced evidence that's suggesting that the speed of light is a local phenomenon in the universe – that means that there is no way that measurement can be objective. It's all relative. Now, within our local universe, within our planet, within our galaxy, we can act as if the speed of light is our, our standard to create measurement so that our measurements are true or right or accurate. But it's not universal. 
There is no such thing as a universal stationary anything in the physical universe if light is only, or the speed of light is only a local phenomenon. Guess what? I mean, if you really pull that down, it means that the universe is subjective. There is no such thing as an objective universe coming from that angle, from the scientific angle of talking about the universe and the nature of it. So we we consider emotion subjective and we consider logic or thinking objective, uh, objective, okay, uh, not to be argued with, precise, uh, not arbitrary is what that's supposed to mean. There is no such thing as that. That's what I've come to know. And that's what I've come to believe. We can functionally work in the world that way. We can operatively make our life make sense that way and make the physics of the world work uh, in a way that's um, predictable and controllable to us to a very high degree using probability. Um, but it's not really objective. It's it's consensual. Subjectivity is the same thing as saying something's consensual. Ten people get together and, and they decide that they want to have fun, so they're going to make up a game. And everybody throws their ideas in onto the table and they talk about it and they come up in an hour with a game they can play. That's a subjectively created game. Guess what? I'm actually clear at this point in my life in my belief that reality is exactly like that. And I don't think, uh, and I think that we're creating the reality. Now, I don't think we're creating the entire universe, but we're creating our own universe entirely. Uh, the collection of however, however many other sentient beings there are in the universe besides human beings who are thinking or self-aware at the level we're, we're aware uh, are the aggregate of what creates the universe as a whole and what we perceive as objectivity, the, the, the object presence of the universe. Anyway, I want to come back to emotions. I'm sorry if I got off the track and blew you away or bored you to death. But my brain tends to go in these directions. Um, so emotion in the smaller frame of our life and our history and our world is that we've all been taught to be out of touch with our hearts, with our emotions, to trust only in what we think and to, and to believe that that's objective and the facts and that our emotions, when they do show up, are weird and arbitrary and not necessary and subjective. And I don't. And that's the mess I waded myself into when I started college on a personal level going, I want to understand what's wrong and how it make, works and so I can fix it. I can be feel better in myself. I can feel better in being in the world. And over the years, this is what I've come to. I'm starting with the spiritual, not the material. Okay, so I'm sp I'm saying that matter is, is comes out of consciousness that we create and then the world manifests. Whether we know that or not, that's the way it's set up to work. And we're doing it that way, especially if we don't know it. We're doing it that way. And it looks and it feels like it's the other way around. The world is creating us, not we're creating the world. But it's because we're, we're out of touch. We're out of touch with the truth, I think, on this level. So coming back to feelings and emotion, um, 
the reason we come here, I believe, from a spiritual perspective, is about love. It's all about love. And I'm not the only person this idea. I mean, I'm just putting my voice to it. And I'm taking a lot of this from other people who are smarter than me and greater philosophers than I'll ever be, I guess. Um, so it's not just my opinion. <laughs> you can find it shared by other people who are supposedly have credits, uh, have validity or something in life. Um we come here to learn about how to love ourself and one other person. And if you learn to, if you learn how to love yourself and one other person, then you would be able to learn. Then you would be able to transfer that and love lots of people, every all people, most of the people, a bigger group. Okay, so if you've just accomplished it with one person, it would it would spread to the rest, so to speak. And by loving ourselves and and the other person, I mean, and this is how I define it these days, in a win-win way. Because the way that we have engaged for 10,000 years of our recorded history on this planet with each other could be really clearly called adversarial. And adversarial is either or. It's I win and you lose. You win and I lose. A win-win is two people interacting, two groups, two entities interacting, and both of them profit in some way from the interaction. Now, one may profit more, but it's not all or none. It's not you get zero and I get 10 or I get uh, 10 and you lose ground or something like I take from you. Win-win means that both people have a positive product at the end of the interaction. Well, we've been in adversarial process and either or and win-lose around loving ourselves and each other for as long as we can remember our recorded history, 10,000 years, one way or another, and especially in the last 4,000 years, the age of Aries, age of Pisces, especially within the age of Pisces, uh, coming from, forward from the age of enlightenment, when science took on spirituality or religion as the source of reality and um, tried to break away or uh, break the hold that spirituality or religion had on us um, over the last 2,000 years. Okay, so currently we are messed up emotionally. Most of us, by the time we're eight or 10 years old, are so disconnected and repressed and in denial and backed up on emotions and using and distorting our emotions in a way that doesn't allow them to show us the truth of what's going on or the meaning of what's going on, that we don't trust our emotions at all. And we are reinforced by that. Um, by spiritual institutions, um, historically, uh, don't be mad or don't be a scaredy cat or, uh, buck up, stop being a crybaby. I mean, these are phrases we hear in our culture, in our schools, in our families, in our religious, uh, institutions over the course of history. Um, and those, those admonitions basically say, don't feel or disregard what you're feeling. Or that your feelings are wrong. It could be interpreted any of those ways. And historically, the people who were telling us that were also the people that could kill us and had great earthly power over us. So it wasn't like we could blow them off historically, and we didn't. 
get to blow them off very much. We died or we complied, so to speak. So karmically, we've had lifetime after lifetime in the age of Pisces, this 2,000 years. We've been backing up the pipe, so to speak, in my opinion, emotionally backed up. And functionally in this life, for me, that's been uh, – there's there's past contaminated feelings. When we think about the past – we th- we remember something in the past. We talk about it as, as, as if it's objective. It's not. It's subjective. Your memory is subjective. Each time you remember your biography, your history, a story, you don't always tell it the same way. You don't pull it out of your unconscious mind in the same composition. And even if you could do it the same way, it wouldn't be 100%. You don't remember 100% of what your body, your being, was able to perceive at the time of the experience. You remember a sample. And once you get to a sample, well, then what governs choosing the sample? You see where the arbitrary, the subjective comes into even having to remember something? So all our memories have a plus minus. We shade and shift them as we go back over them X amount of times in a lifetime. So I'm going to say that the emotion, uh, I'm sorry, that the memory we have is no longer real. It's a version of what really happened. It's not what really happened. And it can change every time we go back and pull it out. So the past memories are not real when we're experiencing them right now when we call them up. But the feelings they generate within our body in the here and now are very real. As real as a person who comes to your door and uh, rings the bell and you open it and they scare the shit out of you somehow, you know, or they smack you in the face and piss you off. There is that, that the emotion is that real. And then we think about the future. We, we speculate, we desire, we want. We try to engineer and create our, our future. Well, how often has the things you've thought about, created, manifested in the future as it becomes a here and now exactly the way that you did it? I would posit never. It's never exactly the way that you imagine it, you create it, you think it. It's always modified in some way, a little different in some way. It goes beyond what you thought of in the first place. So when we think about the future, we're speculating. We're speculating about things that rarely, if ever, turn out exactly the way we think about them in the future. And to that degree, when we think about the future, it's not real either. But the emotion generated by what we think is very real. I think to myself, uh, I need to really change my job now. I need to make more money, blah, 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 blah. I have to buy a house. I got to start a family, something like that. And we think about what we want that to be and the fact that it, it needs to happen in the future, change my job. And you get anxious. You get scared, in other words. Well, guess what? The emotion of sphere with I want my job to, uh, I want a better job or I want a job that works better than the one I've got. That emotion scared is counter to your thought. I want a better job. What your unconscious mind does, which is guiding 90% of your behavior most of the time, the automaticity of life, what your unconscious mind does when it's in conflict between what you think and what you feel, in other words, your head and your heart, your, your autopilot, your unconscious self, follows your heart. It follows your emotions, your feelings. 
So guess what? The scared wins in that contest, in that thinking, feeling contest inside yourself. So whatever it was you thought doesn't manifest. What supports and makes real the feeling that came out of your thought that's what that's the version of what's going to get manifested eventually and you can see a, a paradox in that once you get caught in that loop sometimes you never get out of it people never get out of it so the past contaminated emotions and the future contaminated emotions distort our ability to utilize or to connect with our emotions in the way we're designed to work which is to serve us well as long as we're here, to help us survive, to help us grow, to help us be happy. Spiritually, to help us learn how to love ourselves and somebody else along the way, sooner or later, in a win-win fashion. Now, I also think that we have been uh, children, spiritually, evolutionarily, up until this incarnation. I think we're in the lifetime that is the end of our childhood, like coming of age at the age of 18 or 21 in our culture. We're adults now, but we're just beginner adults. I mean, if you can remember when you left high school or started your life out in the world, left home, yeah, you had the power and you could do whatever you wanted to, but we are also very unskilled and uncertain and didn't know what the heck we were doing. We were just starting to explore how to create being competent at what we end up doing in life. Well, spiritually and incarnationally it works this I, I i think it works the same way we're at the end of our childhood the beginning of our adulthood in this lifetime and i think that's why this life is so so tumultuous i don't think of that word tumultuous especially currently especially since the advent of covid that you know that was like the crap hitting the fan wasn't it uh, although i think if covid had not shown up we would have had more chaos or a different kind of chaos. I think we were were building into an angry, explosive phase when COVID showed up. And guess what? COVID canceled being so angry, didn't it? Almost overnight instantaneously, and that scared the shit out of us. Hmm. But being scared makes us cautious, makes us careful, makes us back off. Being angry makes you push through. So if you wanted to look for a silver lining in COVID, there it is. Uh, It gave us time it backed us off from being uh, driving our car over the cliff maybe in some way who knows anyway that's a thought i've had along the way so what's left if if you have contaminated past emotion generated and contaminated future emotion generated where is there room for i don't know natural emotion or real emotion or good emotion or helpful emotion that's in the present but only in the present, which is kind of like the local neighborhood thing versus universally in the, uni- in the universe when I was talking before about light. Hmm. Okay. So in your daily life, uh, to the degree that you experience here and now as you move through time uh, each day, that's what I'm defining as here. Maybe you can stretch it to... 24 hours, I'm, I'm not sure past 24 hours. I haven't, I haven't really drilled down on that yet myself enough. Anyway, the here and now, the in-your-face part of your life is the present. And when emotion becomes part of that, 
it is never generated from within us and applied to the world like it is with when you think about the past or the future. It is an immediate response before thinking. It is an autopilot response, an instinctive response to something stimulatively or physically hap- or experientially happening at the time to you and the world acting on you, the world that is created acting on you, your personal world or the larger world, doesn't matter. Those emotional reactions are what I think God or the great engineer planned into us and the way we work. Glad, mad, sad, scared, and ashamed. Those feelings are always positive useful information and their information about what's going on in our life and our experience right here right now that is designed to help us so if in the here and now you have a fear reaction to something that happens that's designed to help you save your ass if you have an anger reaction to something that happens in the here and now that's that's a, a an automatic quick gift if you will from god or the great engineer or your body to help you survive, help you do better, help you escape or deal with something, overcome something. And all the feelings, glad, mad, sad, scared, and ashamed, serve a positively life-affirming purpose and are extremely valuable in so many ways in the here and now when they're evoked in the here and now on us from the world. That's here and now emotion. That's uh, clean emotion. We don't live much in that because we're so disconnected from our bodies and our heart centers and our emotions generally through repression and denial by the time we're 10 years old, let's say, that we're out of touch even with that most of the time when it happens. When something smacks you in the face in the here and now, a lot of people are have a delay of minutes to hours to sometimes days before they like go, oh, did that hurt? <laughs> Oh, did that scare me? Uh, That's how numb we are to ourselves, generally speaking, I think. And I'm talking about this now because I'm going through a in-my-face experience that that shakes us out of that kind of thing. Uh, Having somebody die that you love really uh, strongly, as as I love Lynn, there's no way that you can stay in denial and avoidance of your emotions. That's why we lose it along the way, isn't it? When we're grieving. So this experience for me has uh, this cancer project experience. This this last seven months, almost seven months or approximating seven months of life with Linda since she started treatment. And it's like it's six months since then. It's about seven or six and a half since she identified since the beginning of her having cancer, me coming home on July 4th, knowing that she was diagnosed with cervical cancer and uh, shit hit the fan and the world went and went into, oh God, mode. Um, that, that period of time that we had together is not something now that I am saying, oh, if only I wish it, I wish we'd have known then that this was going to turn out this way so we could have avoided all the agony and all the frustration and all the shit that we've gone through. But that's not right. I mean, the minute I have that screwed me, that that screwed up thought, I almost said the wrong thing there. 
that screwed up thought, I have to take charge of my mind and, and throw that out, change my mind about that. Because I know better than, I really know better than that at this point in my life. But the habit is so ingrained, the denial, the avoidance, the repression is so ingrained in us. Goes back through so many lifetimes. It, it's just really hard to not have a piece of you flip into that space while you're processing yourself, even if you're getting clear with your emotions. It's just the work we have to do in this life, I suppose. Um, So I look back on the last seven months of my life with Linda, and we would not have achieved the conscious recognition, the realization, and therefore the seven months of experiencing most of our conscious life with each other at such a deep level that we did. And I'll, and I'll give you the ultimate example of that. When she came home from the hospital after the first four days, like July 7th, 8th, you know, whatever it was, that we came out of the hospital with the diagnosis, waiting for August 1st to start treatment. First thing we did was sit down on our couch together uh, and hold hands and hug and spent an hour just being with each other, having hold of each other and talking. And one of the things I turned and said to Linda was, last night, the the morning she came home, in my sleep, in my half-sleep, in my dream state in the morning or my meditational space, I call it sometimes, in the morning, I said to her, this morning when I was dreaming, before I got up, I recognized that, or I had this thought wandering, and wandering thoughts are not what you're consciously manufacturing with your with your awareness in your conscious mind. They are received thoughts. They are the higher self. They are the inspired knowledge we get from whatever you ascribe source outside of yourself to. Uh, and they usually are the truth, those things that come to us that way. Because they don't they don't have my bias, you know, that kind of thing. I said to her, uh, I got in touch this morning that we not only are functional soulmates in this lifetime, we are not only twin flames, that is as close as you can get to being the same, uh, the same person, uh, yin and yang, male and female, uh, in harmony with each other. I said, we are actually a depend, I really had this, insight this morning that you are literally the male side of my soul and I'm literally the female side of your soul and we happen to be manifesting in bodies in in opposite ways by the way she's a she was a male soul coming through a female body and I'm a uh, male (laughs) she was a female soul coming through oh come on Michael (laughs) She was a male soul coming through a female body in this life, and I am a female soul animated coming through a male body in this lifetime. And we've we've had conversations over our life about that being part of the Aquarian transition into the age of Aquarius and equality emerging in this phase, the age of Aquarius in the next 2,000 years, blah, blah, blah. I said, uh, you're not a soul like the other side of my soul, reminding me of myself. You are myself, and I am yourself. In that purest sense, and I've been saying for 20 years occasionally to people, 
in my work as a coach, as a spiritual coach, about this idea that once in a great while, I mean, like, I don't know, 1% of all our incarnations or 5% of all our incarnations, I said, I would imagine that we could actually literally bump into ourselves on a soul level in another body because we only animate a body in each incarnation. This is not my my knowledge or my wisdom. This is ascribed from lots of sources, Hindu and other spiritual sources uh we only incarnate or animate a body with our soul from half of our soul yin or yang male or female each time around and that in fact in philosophy has been the basis of why human beings experience so much existential angst in life that feeling of lostness incompleteness emptiness desperateness hunger for blank um universally over history the 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 spiritual gurus of our worlds uh have posited that that is in fact probably they believe is the basis for human angst i'm buying that so i said to her i think i'm believing as we come together today out of the hospital that you are literally the other side of my soul and i've had 43 years of being in union in earth on a material plane in a human body with myself i haven't had since i found you i connected with you i haven't had that angst in me anymore it wasn't in there because i'm not separated from you including on the physical level but uh, i'm not separated you from you the other side of myself and vice versa for you and here's the point when i turned to her and said that i said it in a very quick short phrase because her and i have been talking about this forever with each other and i'm trying to explain stuff here to you guys i simply said we are i turned to her and said honey i've come to believe this morning that you are the other side of my own soul and i am the other side of your own soul And Linda and I were like, you know, 10 inches apart face to face. And we were looking at each other's eyes when I said that to her. She was staring at my eyes. I was watching her eyes and her beautiful blue eyes. And she didn't hesitate a microsecond. And my wife, I'm trying to think of the time I spent on this earth with her when her personality didn't take at least a microsecond to analyze whatever I said to her and make up her own mind about it, so to speak. Um, We're both very independent thinkers. She didn't even think. She just had an immediate recognition through their eyes, and she said, you're right. We wouldn't have had seven months of knowing that and immersing ourselves in the completeness of that any other way than the way things played out, including her having cancer in the first place. I mean, you know, the first round of what I asked myself and we asked each other was, how did this happen to me? I mean, uh, you know, I'm positing, I'm fostering, I'm practicing, I'm doing. Isn't this saying something? I did something wrong. I fucked up. Pardon me. Um, I screwed up. Well, that was the first thing we had to 
sort out at our ego level and get clear about ourselves at a deeper level or, or to remind and reaffirm ourselves on. No, it wasn't. This was the only way we could have parted in this lifetime. It was the ideal way. It was the epitome. I, I, I was going to say perfect, but I don't want to say perfect. It was the most excellent way for us to spend the last six to seven months of our time together in body with ourself. And to know that this was that 1% of the incarnational times that we've both come through where you get to hook up with yourself. Now that set me up to anticipate feeling a quality of angst, existential angst after she left her body that I may not have ever felt before or would be worse than my normal angst, whatever that is <laughs> supposed to be, generally speaking. And that gave me a moment of pause. Well, now I'm here, so I've survived. You know, I've survived up to this point. I don't. I don't doubt I'll survive this piece too. And that that opened up also our emotionality with each other in a way. And we've been pretty open with each other about our emotions. No one is 100% present to anyone else on this plane. You can't share 100% of yourself across the boards with anybody. Uh, but we've been well above average in our 43 years of being open with each other. Because uh, God knows we've had enough knockdown dragouts. <laughs> with each other along the way uh, to match the joy and the depth that we've had with each other. So uh, this really uh, was the most profound agony, ecstasy, wonderful, terrible, most meaningful seven months of my life. And it is propelling me beyond my grasp of what I'm doing here or who I am. Uh, It's propelling me forward in a way that um, I'm I'm in some sort of chrysalis, some sort of transformation. And I can't even, I want to, but I can't even wrap my head around what the manifestation of that really is going to turn out to be in the next year the next two years, the next five years of my life. When I try to think of myself in five years, I haven't got a clue who I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing in the world. Um, It could be that radically different than what I've done up until now. I don't know. I mean, it's still going to be spiritual and karmic and philosophical and life supportive and and life coaching uh, to to some degree, but it's probably also going to be more... um, proselytizing, more sharing concepts and ideas, more talking at large in public rather than in small group and individual relationship work. That's, I mean, I could see that coming, but I don't know how far that's going to go, what flavor it's going to take, what it's going to, how it's going to play out, any of that stuff. But transformation, this six months has opened, opened us both up to a depth that we could never have anticipated any other way. 
So my wife's cervical cancer wasn't a malady that befell her. It was a hard, dried ink script line that was put in before we ever came down in our bodies and bumped into each other after we grew up, in my opinion, in my knowing, in my truth-telling. It was unavoidable. It was inevitable. If we managed to get as far as we did in life, it stayed with each other. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Even now, while the hurting's going on. So, I got off on a rant. I'm at 53 minutes. I'm going to stop. Um, I'm probably going to spend the rest of my life talking about emotions with people. I have spent most of my adult life talking about emotions with people. I Maybe one of the things that's my secret superpower. I don't know. Anyway, um, that's the news, all the news for today about me and about the Cancer Project. And I want to come back to, again, if you think, if you want to come to the Celebration of Life for Linda Brady, which I think is going to be a cosmic blowout, I want it to be. Uh, send in affirmation, confirmation, or send in, oh, that bait is really bad for me. Uh, this is what works better. So I can sort of get my handle on over the next week as many people as I can and try to make it uh, a date that most people, the most people who want to can uh, can be part of. And again, the, um, the date of it is, uh, the proposed date is April 21st. You come in the 22nd and the 23rd are the days of the workshop, Saturday and Sunday, and then you're out of there Friday night or, uh, I'm sorry, Sunday night or Monday morning, you know, depending on your pleasure at the time. And it will be held in Tampa, Florida, where we've lived, where I live. And I look so forward to this uh, experience. Uh, there's a part of me that wants it now, but the the universe spoke when I approached it, and uh, April looked like the best first time, was the best sweet spot, um, trusting whatever that means, uh, and how we lock it down around that will actually be the best spot when we get to it. So hopefully it'll stay there. If it doesn't, it'll, it'll move a little bit one weekend or the other, probably up the road. We'll see uh, by this time next week, and you'll hear about it on Monday, a week from tomorrow, by podcast. And then things will be locked, and uh, people can start making preparations, and we can start making our preparations. And we'll move toward the moment of joy and sharing with each other. So uh, this is Michael Brady. It's um, Sunday the 29th. It's day 180 of the Cancer Project. It's plus five, the fifth day since my soulmate, my ultimate soulmate, my twin flame soulmate, the other side of myself, left a body body union with me and went into pure spirit uh, and is in joy and peace and love now. And already reaching back to the people she left behind. 
and still inspiring and helping all of us. So until the next time, I, I'm not sure how long, how often I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm thinking every two days, every three days as I go forward. Um, we'll see how it pans, how, how the craziness of life pans out. But I'm going to keep going, uh, as I've said before. And uh, until I talk to you again, I love you all. Please feel free to opine and get back to me and, and um, give me whatever input you need or, or, or want to and ask me for whatever I can do for you uh, because this really is a journey of love. Thank you. And this is Michael Brady from Partners for Karmic Freedom.